You're going to have to wait a minute for me this morning. There we go. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 17. And we are picking up in verse 14. So Matthew 17, 14 through 21 is what we're looking at this morning. And once you are there, then I would ask... If you would stand in reverence as we read God's word. And these are the inerrant and infallible words of the living God. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And may God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So to overlap a little bit, so we remember where we're at in the story. Last week we just looked at the Mount of Transfiguration and at how Christ shone his divinity through the veil of his humanity and he made it evident to the apostles who were with him. And together on that Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah showed up. And these two men, as we saw, represented, in in summary form, they represented the whole of the prophets and the law. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. And this is fitting with Jesus' own declaration that in him is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. And here Moses and Elijah show up to agree with Christ. Yes, this is true. This was all headed to Christ. And these two men, Moses and Elijah, both had powerful experiences with God in their ministries. Both confronted the most powerful rulers of their day. In the one case, Pharaoh, and in the other, Ahab. Both men, as we saw, faced tremendous discouragement and, in the providence of God, went up the exact same mountain. In Moses' day, it was called Sinai. In Elijah's day, it was called Horeb. But in their discouragement, they went there and met with God. And both of these men experienced the blinding power and the radiance of the glory of God on this mountaintop, which meant that both men had to veil their faces. Both of their lives also end up in mysterious circumstances. Elijah was simply assumed to heaven on a chariot of fire. Elijah did not die. He was just taken to heaven. And Moses, likewise, was taken up a mountain, shown the promised land that he would be unable to enter, died, and God buried him directly. And then I pointed out that weird verse in Jude that the archangel Michael and the devil were contending for the body of Moses. So both of these men disappear from this world in mysterious circumstances and show up at the transfiguration of Christ. The law and the prophets appear with Christ. Remember, Peter offered to make tents or a booth Mimicking the Feast of Booths that the Jews would have been used to celebrating from the Old Covenant era. 
The problem is, with Peter making three booths, it would almost communicate that these three men are approximate equals. And remember, as Peter is speaking, as Peter's making this offer, a glory cloud appears and Moses and Elijah disappear back into the background and Christ is there standing alone. And this is a clear demonstration of the supremacy of Christ as a whole. This is the whole point of redemptive history has come to this moment. We see that the law and the prophets are not abolished, but they terminate into Christ, just like rivers reaching an ocean. And so now Christ is standing alone as the champion of the old covenant, as the champion of redemptive history. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king that the ancients had been waiting for and typifying to a large degree. And he is preparing to work his final confrontation in Jerusalem on his way to his coronation to the right hand of his father. But all mountaintop experiences must come to an end, and that's where we pick up the story again. Just as Moses had to come down from Sinai, so Christ must come down from this mountain. And just as Moses was immediately confronted with sin, idolatry, and corruption when he came down to see the Israelites worshiping a golden calf, and remember, and this is immediately applicable to us when we think about worship, if you watch closely, if you read closely what the Israelites say they're doing, they call that calf God. They call their false worship true worship. Okay? Just because you say the word Jesus or God, if you are doing things in corporate worship that God has not commanded, God detests it. God hates it if he has not commanded us to do it. The worship service is not a place for our innovation to come up with things that we think are meaningful to us. For instance, making a golden calf and saying that's the God who brought us out of Israel. Worship must be according to God's design or it must not happen at all. So these people are offering false worship using orthodox words, using biblical words, and yet the worship itself is not from their heart. It's not as God commanded. God hates it. And remember how that ends. The Levites go through the camp and start hacking people to pieces with the sword as they deserved. This idol is ground up into powder, put in the water, and the people are forced to drink their idolatry. And isn't that a picture of sin? When we give in to sin, God makes us so full that it, in Proverbs it says it starts coming out of your nostrils. <laughs> okay? God fills you with what uh, is to your own destruction when we give ourselves to sin. And so Moses showed this undoing as these people are forced to drink their idol and get butchered. And now we pick up the story in verse 14 and 15. It says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And seemingly this father is like most fathers who love their sons and want the best for them. And for this dad, like us, to see your boy or to see your child suffering from seizures and epilepsy in such a destructive manner must be heartbreaking. It must be terribly painful to watch your child suffer this way. And our modern English translations generally call this condition epilepsy or seizures. Interestingly, we talked about translation this morning. But a very literal translation that would get us into this world would be moonstruck. And if you have an older uh, translation of the Bible, it might say moonstruck or lunatic. And I think this shows that one area in which the ancients understood the world around them better than we do is that they were not so foolish as to assume that science would have the final word on how to interpret reality. 
No doubt, these people would have used whatever science they had available to them to come up with technology and remedies, and that's good. That's a gift from God. Science is a gift from God when properly used, but it is not a master. The ancients understood that there's an unseen world that is just as real that, as the material world. And so we happen to live in an age of empiricism or an age of science in which we have decided ourselves into thinking that we understand something deeply if we understand how it works. Okay? So we think in our modern conception, if we figure out how something works, that must mean we understand it. And that is not always the case. As true as some things may be, Science, empiricism, is unable to answer the why question. It's unable to look into the world of meaning. It can only see operations and mechanisms, but it can't understand meaning. And we do not just live in a world of facts. We do live in a world of meaning. And one illustration that might demonstrate how this works is picture a grand piano. And in this piano, there's a small family of mice living in the back corner. And periodically, these mice hear Handel's Messiah. And so legend has, from one generation of mice to the next, that there must be a songwriter and there must be a player behind this beautiful music that they keep hearing. And this gets handed down from generation to generation until some mice are so brave to say, you know what, we should explore into this a little deeper. We should see what's behind this music. And so one of them bravely goes out and he explores what's happening inside that piano. And he comes back and reports, good news, guys. There's no piano player. There's no music. I figured it out. It's just hammers hitting a string. See, there's no piano player. That's what our age of enlightenment has done, is to say if we can figure out how something works, that must mean we understand it. And that is absolutely not the case. Understanding how things work is different than understanding what things mean. And in this case, the fact that this boy is an epileptic or that he is moonstruck or that he is a lunatic takes us back immediately from the world of science to the world of meaning. I've shared it before when we were working through the Psalms last summer. But the word lunatic just very simply means it's a state of being of being ruled by the moon, right? A lunar eclipse has to do with the moon. Luna is the moon. And the suffix tick has to do with a state of being, a paralytic. A lunatic is someone whose state of being is to be ruled by the moon. So in one sense, because the sun, or because the moon is to the sun as man is to God, we are a reflected image. Okay, so the moon is us in terms of cosmology. The sun is God. We are an image. We are a reflection. The sun is the real thing. So lunatics are those who serve the image rather than the original. They serve man instead of God. They serve the created things instead of the creator. Lunatics live by the light of their own nature rather than by the light at its source, the light of the sun, S-O-N. So in a spiritual sense, there is a very real connotation of darkness associated with the nighttime. And you have that to this day. People can't figure it out. But it seems like there is something to this full moon fever stuff. It seems like there's something to it. And that it, if that is true, that doesn't mean that we live in a world of astronomy. It may mean that God is teaching us a lesson with the way he does things. This is what it looks like when you're ruled by the night. This is what happens when you serve the, creator, or the creature rather than the creator. So it's not 
unfitting, it's not cruel. We think the word lunatic maybe means something cruel, but the fact that the older translations use that does not mean anything cruel at all. It's a statement of meaning rather than just of mechanism. There's no indication that every case of seizures or epilepsy is spiritual in nature, like this one clearly is. And there's also no indication that the seizures in this boy's case are the result of personal sin. Rather, this particular boy has been afflicted with a demon who has attached himself to his health condition. Matthew Poole, commenting on this passage and putting all the gospel accounts, and we're going to look at how the other gospels look at this account a little bit, but looking at the whole thing in composite, Matthew Poole comments this, He begins to inquire what they were discoursing about, but was by and by interrupted with a certain man who comes and falls down upon his knees before him, begging mercy for his son, who, as Matthew reports his condition, was lunatic and sore vexed, often falling into the fire and often into the water. Mark saith, he had a dumb spirit that it tore him. He often foamed and gnashed with his teeth. Luke saith that it was the man's only child, that he had a spirit, that he cried out. It tear him. He foamed and was bruised by it. By the description of this young man's disease, it appeareth to have been what we call the falling sickness, wherein men fall down, foam, and beat themselves. With this disease, the devil joined, so as at certain times of the moon, this disease took him. And the devil acting with it, he was dumb, at least for the time, and fell sometimes into the fire, sometimes into the water, foamed, gnashed with his teeth, tore himself. This seems to have been his condition. The father, during Christ's absence, had attempted to cure by his disciples, but the text saith they could not. The reason we shall hear afterward, upon this he cried unto Christ for help. So Matthew Poole is seeing both the... uh, the experiential, the physical side, and also making reference to the spiritual nature of what's happening. He's not picking one, he's seeing both together. And I think we ought to acknowledge that not, uh, there's not a demon in every case of a physical affliction. That's not what the text is saying here. It's not saying every case like this is demonic. That's not what it's saying. But in this case, there is a spiritual element that has joined with this disease. And when we think about our own condition, we should always remember that God has made us as complete people. He has knit body and soul together. So a person is body and soul. It's not one or the other. And real life has a way of showing us that sometimes this barrier between body and soul gets very, very, very thin. I have people in my life that I know have physical ailments, and it's the kind of physical ailments that you can test for or see uh, with an x-ray or so forth that I'm convinced there's a spiritual element to it as well. And I think we sometimes see that wall getting very thin. In verse 17 and 18, it goes on and says, And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And so despite the disciples' lack of faith or insight at times, they are not completely faithless men. And so Christ's words here about a faithless and twisted generation don't quite seem to fit. But if you go and read this account in Mark's gospel, we uh, gain a little bit more information. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 9, I believe it is, he also says that there were scribes present who were arguing with the disciples. 
So that's actually a helpful bit of information. The scribes were here arguing with the disciples as they were unable to heal this boy. And so none of the accounts give us an exact explanation of what they're arguing about. But I think uh, the most obvious explanation is the one that Kelvin provides in his commentary. Uh, I think it just fits and it would seem the most natural of all. And so once again, we may be reminded in this whole scene of what we've just seen with the transfiguration, that this is like Moses coming down from the mountain to find the people distracted, doing their own thing, caught in idolatry. You see see the marks of a sinful world. You see the marks of sin everywhere and corruption. And Christ is forced to confront this as he comes down from the mountain, just as Moses was. We saw that Christ, Peter, James, and John have just been atop the Mount of Transfiguration and they have been blessed with visions of glory and power. And yet beneath them, all around, are reminders of the remaining sin and corruption in the world. Not only in the fact of the boy's illness, but also in the disciples' inability to heal, as well as the criticisms of the scribes. And so like the people of Israel who descended into chaos while Moses was away, we have here another scene of chaos that ensues when Christ is away. It doesn't take long. Christ just goes up to the mountain, uh, and right away, you've got scribes arguing with the disciples who are down there. There's chaos very quickly. The disciples are still quite green and unsuccessful in their healing of the boy, and so no doubt, the scribes are sure to remind them of their failure and the weakness of their master. And I think this is Calvin's main point here, is that this is what the argument is about. The disciples are unable to heal the boy, and the scribes latch onto that and criticize them for their impotence in this situation. And so an argument ensues. And so the argument between the disciples and the scribes is no doubt what Christ condemns here. That's what he comes to condemn. Uh, This faithful and twisted generation is because of the nature of that argument, not just bare uh, fact that the disciples cannot heal the boy, but the fact that there's chaos and an argument and a questioning of God's power on behalf of the scribes. We've had so many run-ins with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we know that the scribes have already seen so much and rejected so much from Christ. And their hardness and their unbelief is once again on display as they try to humiliate the servants of Christ in this episode. And how often are Christ's servants humiliated to this very day in our society as it becomes chaotic? Even in families or in societies that have been clearly built up by Christ, Things do fall apart very rapidly when Christ is out of the picture. And we might stop and pause here, both in this case and in our own experience, that the problem with so many of the criticisms about Christians is that they actually land well. They're true. Many of the criticisms that, uh, that unbelievers have of us are correct. That's what makes this so difficult. Very often, we are weak in our faith. Very often, we are an impotent church. Very often we do not know the path forward. Very often our worship is irreverent and casual. Maybe we do struggle with sin and hypocrisy. These criticisms are right. We are a casual, lazy, selfish, sinful, inward-focused people. It's correct. And that's what makes this so difficult. That's what can make the discouragement and the confusion set in and be that much more intense. However, Christ loves his people despite these imperfections, however true they are. And just as any man worth his salt would take it as a direct attack on him if someone attacked his wife, 
So it is, when people attack the church of Christ, Jesus Christ takes that very personally. He is a true husband in that sense. If you abuse and if you talk poorly about my people, you have just declared war on me. So despite the book title, there is actually no such thing as this concept of these people who love Jesus, but they don't love the church. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. That's impossible. If you love Jesus, you will love his church. If you don't love the church of Jesus, guess what? QED, you do not love Jesus. Jesus takes this personally, and he gets to work immediately. He, first of all, curses that generation of Jewish leaders who are in this long, slow process of rejecting him, as we've already seen, and here's yet just another instance of it. And the this generation language shows up here again. And there is a special significance to the events of Christ's ministry on earth and to this generation to whom he was ministering. So we should not lose that. There is something about this generation. These are the people who are rejecting him. These are the people who are seeing these promises unfold in that generation. This is true. But of course, we can make legitimate application to any generation of people who are not known for loving the Lord. Jesus comes as the second Adam. Jesus is the true man, the true champion of the human race. And his example here in masculine tenderness and in masculine strength both show up. Jesus doesn't pick one. He does both. We saw that last week. We see this blinding glory, and then we see him gently touching the disciples and say, fear not. And here it is again. Notice that Jesus does not shame or embarrass the disciples for their lack of success. Rather, he just steps in and fixes the problem. He takes decisive responsibility for the situation. He asks for the boy, he's given the boy, and the boy is immediately healed. Jesus takes the problem, says, yeah, it's my problem. I'm going to take it. I'm taking responsibility. As a masculine man must do, problem is fixed. Jesus is showing what manhood looks like. And it goes on in verse 19 and 20. It says, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Depending on your translation, some of you will have verse 21 at the end here, and some will not. Some of you will notice your Bibles go straight to verse 22 from verse 20. What's that about? Uh, Verse 21, if it does appear, says, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. And probably for most of you, that's a footnote rather than in the main text. And that's because as we discover older and older uh, originals, verse 21 isn't in the older copies. And so by the time we have unearthed those, English translations already had the versification in it. So verse 21 was already signed certain words. And so when there's question, rather than changing all the verses and putting everything out of sync, it's just put in the footnotes because we're not sure if it's original or not. Uh, And if it's not, don't sweat it. This isn't a threat at all to the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, Rather, what we probably just have is that some of those later copies copied from Mark's Gospel and put this in as a footnote, and it came to be accepted. There's nothing contradictory about it. It matches Mark's account perfectly. Don't let that bother you. It's just questionable whether it's in the original or not. But again, verse 21 does match up perfectly with Mark 9.29. So there is zero contradiction here whatsoever. Jesus' intervention saved the disciples from being completely humiliated. 
And so once they are in private, they try to understand the situation better. Why were we unsuccessful? And in Mark's account, the father says that this demon has been afflicting his boy since he was very small. And so the longer he remains in the state, the more difficult it becomes, right? And that's the case with most diseases. The longer you leave it untreated, the deeper it sinks in and the more difficult the situation becomes. We want to heal disease quickly. And so Spurgeon makes application of this passage here, saying that we ought to learn from this to deal with the spiritual well-being of children while they are still very young. And I've often commented that I far rather have babies crying than a church where there are no babies. Babies are a sign of life. Babies are a sign of the future. And so we practice uh, family-integrated worship here. And once, if, Lord willing, we have a building that has a big nursery, we're still going to keep that up. We want the children here, and that doesn't mean that children are to be feral animals. We're looking for more than just physical presence, okay? Family integrated worship includes the last two words, integrated worship. That means children are here not just to be present, but to learn. Children are here to learn the songs. They're here to learn how to sit and listen and, and read their Bibles, Okay, so we're including them in the worship, not just physical presence, but teaching them how to worship, teaching them how to be reverent. And we want to do that early on. We don't want to miss those early years by shipping them off to a nursery and not being involved in corporate worship with God's people. Okay? We, want, we want that intergenerational handing off of the faith from one to the other. So children must be here. And that's Spurgeon's application. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't delay. Deal with the children while they are still young. Teach them the gospel, even if they don't have sophisticated language. And yes, your faith when you're age 30 will be more sophisticated than when you're three. That's true. But isn't it great when you see a three-year-old who wants his sins forgiven, who knows his heart is dirty, and he needs his sins forgiven? Isn't that precious? Yes, it'll be more sophisticated when he gets older. But don't delay. Start. Start. And Christ is taking this moment to teach his disciples and to encourage them to press in further and to get stronger in their faith. He's not saying that they didn't possess faith, merely that it was weak. And so maybe they got distracted. Maybe they doubted the ministry to which Christ had called them. Perhaps they started to believe the critics of Christ more than they believed Christ himself. Perhaps they forgot the object of their faith and started to misdirect it somewhere other than Christ and on his power. And we see that very often too, where people use faith, the, the language of faith, as though faith in itself is something potent. Even George Michael can sing, you've got to have faith. And I, there's nothing about George Michael's life that made me think this was a man who was serving the Lord. Faith as a thing is completely impotent. Faith is powerless. Faith is nothing. Faith in Christ is everything. It's the object of your faith, not that you have faith in something. Okay? How many times you hear, oh, you've got to have faith in yourself. You can be an Olympic hockey player. I can't. I don't care how much faith I have in myself. I'll never be good enough. Okay? That's nonsense. Faith has an object. Faith must be in Christ. And we can have weak faith in Christ or we can have strong faith in Christ. But faith in faith, faith in yourself, faith that things will work out is nothing. There is no promise there whatsoever. And so Jesus reminds them that they need to think this one through. Your faith needs to grow stronger. And he uses the kind of symbolic language here to teach that should instantly draw us back to his earlier sermons and illustrations, which is a mustard seed and a mountain. And the mustard seed language should remind us of Matthew 13, 
where Christ compares the growth of the kingdom to a mustard seed. And despite its small beginnings, it grows into a large tree. And the point here is that the small faith of the disciples is, in fact, capable of growing bigger. It's capable of understanding Christ's purposes yet. Slowly but surely, these guys are going to catch on to what Jesus is doing in redemptive history. And they'll be strong enough to press into the kingdom with full confidence and full strength. Also, we have seen many mountains so far. There's so many mountains that are involved in the ministry and in the teaching of Christ, and even earlier in the Old Testament. We see this kind of prophetic language in the Old Testament. And now in Christ's ministry, we've seen the significance of many mountains. We saw Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb in the Transfiguration. We've seen Daniel's language of this rock hurtling down from heaven, destroying the empires of the earth, and then growing into this great mountain that covers the earth. And that happened, of course, when Christ came. And within 300 years, the Roman Empire is drastically different. It's been Christianized. In in less than 300 years, you have over 50% of the citizens in the Roman Empire naming the name of Christ. So this happens sometimes in a very literal kind of a way. You have the uh, language from the prophets, like Malachi, Zechariah, mountains uh, melting like wax, or mountains splitting in half so rivers can flow through. And so in the biblical conception... When mountains shake, and when mountains melt, and when mountains break open, God is at work in redemptive history. And many commentators have noted here that Jesus says, this mountain. And I think we frequently miss that. I'm not sure how much significance to assign to it, but Jesus says, this mountain. In specific application to the mountain that Jerusalem and the temple are built on. And if that is the case, then this metaphorical language is very soon going to move into very solid fulfillment when the destruction of this mountain does, in fact, take place at the end of the generation of the disciples. Jesus promised that it would happen, and it did, in a generation. And so the mustard seed language, this little mustard seed can and will conquer a mountain, just like you sometimes see a little shoot. Have you ever seen a little shoot make its way through a sidewalk, (laughs) and you see the persistence of this little elm seed just break through and the concrete opens up, okay? Uh, We can see that in our life. This little thing is capable of commanding mountains. It will command mountains. It's true. But regardless of how much direct application we make to that mountain, there does remain an important lesson for all of us. In the last few passages, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for the final days of confrontation ahead of them as he gets ready to go into Jerusalem. Peter has confessed Christ as Lord. And Christ then lays out his mission for the church, which is to take her place at Christ's right hand as he accomplishes this dominion mandate that the first Adam failed at. He has promised the church victory over the gates of hell even. And she follows her husband as he binds Satan and starts plundering his stuff. And lest the victory of the mission of God starts to sound too easy, a cross and martyrdom are also promised as the means by which this is going to happen. Christ has shown himself in his divine nature. He's shown himself to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the better Moses, the better Elijah. And after all that, in today's text, Christ is going to show up again, not to humiliate his followers, but to strengthen them. He doesn't mock their failed efforts. He's not humiliating them. He's not drawing attention to them. Rather, he's acting like a man. He acts like a true husband must. He shoulders the responsibility on himself and he heals this boy. And then rather than shaming the disciples in public, he patiently teaches them in private about the progress they still need to make 
and the growth that still needs to happen. And there's application for parenting and for intergenerational discipleship at Trinity. And I think we're doing a good job of this, but we want to keep doing a better and better job of what does this look like to take care of the needs of others, to act in a masculine way, to help those who are behind us come up and to get stronger so that that mustard seed of faith can continue to grow and develop in their hearts. And I want to encourage that. I know lots of that is happening through men's ministry, women's ministry, one-on-one friendships, inviting people into each other's homes. And we want that to continue. By all means, please keep it up. And for us as men and fathers or for older women and mothers, as we look for our place in the story, are we looking to lead and to teach the way that Christ leads and teaches? Or are those who are coming up in the ranks willing to learn? And so for you younger ones, are you willing to learn? Are you younger ladies willing to learn what it looks like to be an older godly woman? Are you younger guys willing to learn what it looks like to become a godly man, to grow in masculinity, to flex your muscles, to put five more pounds on the bar and and press further next time. That's what intergenerational discipleship looks like. That also applies immediately to family-integrated worship. This church isn't big enough to have a specific ministry for Hungarian-born helicopter pilots who have been divorced. We're, We're not at that size. But even if we were, that's not how discipleship in the Bible looks like. Discipleship looks like the people of God being together. One generation helping the next. Come along, come along. Okay? And if the boys don't learn, the men won't know. And so it's our task as older people to help those who are you uh, new and younger in the faith to keep pressing on, to keep going. And that's where I want to leave it this morning, wherever you are. Whether you are an older one that has something to offer, whether you're a younger one that has something to offer, wherever you're at in terms of your maturity and your own discipleship, Are you willing to learn from those who are ahead of you? Are you willing uh, to teach those who are behind you? Are you willing to lead like Jesus did? You know, if you're an old guy, don't kick the young guys. Oh, they're they're lazy and they know nothing. Okay? Do what Jesus did. Don't humiliate them. What's my job to teach these young guys? They're not going to just learn it from nothing. Teach them. Okay? Moms, do the same thing. If you've had an experience and and the next one's younger than you are, are coming along, don't Note their cluelessness, help. That's the way Jesus led here. These guys are green. They're trying to figure it out. They don't know what to do. They're being humiliated. And rather than adding to the humiliation, rather than kicking them, Jesus just takes responsibility and says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep growing. And that's my charge to all of us this morning. Find your place in this church, in the story, in your life, in your family. And do your part to make the vision for this intergenerational obedience, intergenerational one family of God discipleship, a reality. Let's close. Father God, I want to thank you uh, for the way you minister, for the way that you show us what it's like to be a true man, to disciple rather than to humiliate, to take responsibility rather than to kick at those who don't yet see it. Lord, and I pray that we would all have the willing, learning mindset of your disciples, that we would not get defensive but rather that we would learn from you, even in those moments where our faith comes to be tested. Lord, and I pray that through your spirit, you would help us to encourage each other, to strengthen each other, to speak to each other in a way that does not humiliate, but that encourages to take the next step, to get stronger, for this little mustard seed of faith to grow into something potent and strong and powerful 
for generations to come. And I pray that you would bless us wherever we are at in terms of our own discipleship, in terms of our family life, in terms of our age. Lord, teach us. Help us to grow. Make us stronger. Make us potent warriors in your kingdom that people will look at our lives, that they will look at this church and see the kingdom of God being built the way you would have it be built. Thank you for your kindness. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And amen. Please stand as we sing.
I will say at the outset, I didn't mean to overstate, I'm sorry if I did, about children in worship. My idea that sharing with Jim Jordan that every time a baby cries in church, a demon loses its wings is still the case. I was merely attempting to explain why we want children in church. As those little mustard seeds grow, they need to be here. And so the charge is this. In the story of the demon-possessed boy, we see the results of the fall coming into contact with the ministry of Christ's disciples. This is an early encounter in the long war for the cosmos. This war continues today, and so we can no doubt relate to the experience of these men as they encounter failure. Our faith is likewise too weak, too distracted, too misguided, too subject to doubts and to the accusations of those who oppose us. We remain a people in desperate need of the headship of Christ. And rather than humiliating us, he takes our failures and our deficiencies upon himself. He shows us what sacrificial responsibility looks like, and in so doing, teaches us how our faith can grow, not only in its strength, but also in its object, Jesus Christ himself. So the charge is this. When you encounter difficulty, setback, and even failure in this week and the weeks to come, remember that Christ is happy to shoulder your burden. He is not embarrassing you, but is training you to become stronger, wiser, less oriented to yourself, and more to him. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And I'll leave you with the benediction from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word, and go in peace. Mm -hmm.